Uh, most gracious God, we're very thankful that you've brought us to this place uh, together just to sit and think and hear from you. Uh, thank you for worship this morning, Lord. Uh, thank you for inviting us into your communion as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that um, we bring nothing to the table, God. You invite us in uh, solely by the work of Christ. Uh, and we thank you for that. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this is our um, second week, our second installment of the Songs of Summer series. Let me get the slide up here. Um, which, you know, we do this every summer, kind of a targeted class towards uh, youth and adults, which you probably know that, of course, you're here. Um, I think, as, as by way of a theological um, exercise, though, it's a really great habit to listen to music, uh, watch movies, uh, read anything that culture offers, um, and, and try and try and think about where where God is in it. Now, I, I came from kind of a church. I didn't grow up in church, but I came from a church that completely rejected culture um, in, in my teenage years in, in such a way where if you listen to anything um, secular, as they call it, you know that's sinful. That's bad. You don't do that. Um, you know that's that's of the devil. That's a little little extreme, but um, I've kind of grown out of that and seen that. Really, here at maybe Advent, maybe Mockingbird is a good example of a, a ministry that tries to engage culture. Uh, so, I, like I said, it's by way of theological exercise, I think this is just a fun thing to do and a good thing to model, especially for um, for youth and, and for adults. Um, and just kind of a little plug for Cameron. Uh, Cameron wrote a great article this year talking about great offense and great defense um, by way of our, our media and the way we, we do that. So, defense in the sense of protecting our kids and ourselves from what's really harmful. So when I say engaging culture, I'm not saying we go watch and listen to everything and anything. Um, but he talked about a great offense. It's, it's an article in the Gospel Coalition if you're interested. Isn't that right? It's Gospel Coalition? Great. Um, but a great offense, this is what we're doing this morning, like learning how to listen and engage and appropriate the gospel according to that. That's, you know, reading our scripture, having prayer, that's, that's good offense. And so when we come across things, um, we, we, can, we can appropriate them properly. Now, I'm not, I'm not bringing anything real... Uh, Controversial. Paramore's really clean. Who's heard of Paramore before? Anybody? Okay, maybe four, five, six, seven. How many of you came because the class had Paramore in the title? Okay, I know. I know why you're here. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, Paramore. I've got a little bit of punk rock in my veins. Um, they're kind of poppy, but um, you know, the little punk too. So that's kind of my thing. Um, I actually had a friend in college. My, my first introduction to Paramore was my, my first semester in college. I had a friend who was the official uh, fan website, uh, I guess, master for Paramore. He was in charge of the fan website. It sounded so prestigious to me at the time. Like, oh, he's in charge of this, this great website. Spends all these hours. What it really means is Colin spent hours a day and got paid nothing. That's what it really, what it really came down to. But anyways, we went to a handful of shows. He would conduct interviews. Um, it was a lot of fun. They're a really, a really fun band. Here's a picture of them. Um, you've probably seen, maybe you have, I don't know. She's known for her bright red hair. Um, they're from Nashville, Franklin, te technically. And um, this song today uh, is released this year, this summer. It's called Ain't It Fun. It's really great grammar. Um, Ain't It Fun. And I have, to, I have to admit, I did not pick this song for any like, robust theological reason. I picked it solely because it's a fun song. Uh, and it was you know, on the top charts. And I figured maybe some people had heard of it. Although after the mystery trip this week, I, I should have picked and rather be. Have you all heard of this song? I heard it 814 times on the trip. <laughs> Uh, and at first it was a little of a letdown, but I've learned to kind of channel it and enjoy it. I don't know what it is, um, but now I hate it too. So, um, anyways, uh, I picked I picked the song because I thought I thought it would be a hit, but uh, apparently not as pe many people have heard of it. Anywho, well, without further ado, we'll play the song as I switch here. Um, 
And let me know if I need to turn it up, especially for the recording. I'm, I'm not savvy for that. Obviously, that's not loud enough. How's that? We'll stop it there. I had to get through the gospel choir part. That's my favorite part. Um, that's just a lot of fun. Decidedly more pop than they used to be. They used to be much more punk and a little more um, less mainstream, you might say. But if you get a chance, watch the music video. It's super funny. Um, their, their, their whole thing in the video was just to break world records. So they break, I think, like 10 world records in the video. One of them is uh, most guitars busted in a video. So they break like, I don't know, about 30 or something. Uh, one of them is literally breaking records. So they take records and they're breaking records. Who can break the most records in 30 seconds? And they're actually Guinness World Records, uh, which is really funny. Um, so watch the video. Oh, and just one other little entertaining thing here before we <laughs> really get started. This album here, this um, EP they put out, they put three other remixes on it of the same song. Let me get it going here. So it's the same song, but they've, you know, they've changed it up a little bit. So that's just a lot of fun. I feel like this should be, you know, for you aspiring DJs or... Um, funk fans, maybe this is a shout out for John Zoll, I don't know if he's ever listens to this. Uh, John Zoll, the clergyman who spins, spins discs. Anywho, okay, well that's Ain't It Fun. Uh, that was a lot of fun for me. 
um, especially especially the gospel choir. Don't don't lose that part. Um, okay, so Paramore, bright red hair, uh, young, fun. Um, you know, when we read the Bible, we oftentimes hear I don't know if maybe you hear I don't know but you hear about authorial intent. Have you heard this expression before? It's kind of a fancy word of saying what did the author intend. Um, and a lot of times we we don't have access to that. We don't we don't know what Paul was thinking when he wrote to the Romans or, or what have you. And so we we can speculate all day long. What? But with a living artist like Paramore, I can go to their website and see what she intended by her lyrics. Um, so it's kind of unfair, I guess, from a literary standpoint, just looking at her song. You know, what does she mean by it? I can just go to her website and see what she meant. Um, so Paramore, if you ever hear this, I, I saw your website, which Colin used to run. Um, anyways, okay, so this song. Um, Looking at it, you know, I, I initially thought it was a breakup song. When I was reading it, I thought it's a very sarcastic tone. You know, you hear a pop song, you, you, I tend to think it's a romantic sort of thing. And I thought she had broken up with a guy and basically saying, look, you're on your own now. Get with it. It's the real world. You don't have uh, special treatment anymore. But on her website and in interviews, um, her name's Haley, Haley Williams, she, she said that this song was really about her kind of growing up. So she recorded um, in Nashville for several years. I think they had three records in Nashville. And um, really kind of hit it big. I think two of their albums went platinum. And then two, two, of, the, um, two of the band members left. Had a huge fight, really. Uh, they're two brothers. And so she picked up two other bandmates. And I think in the meantime, decided, I'm moving to L.A. Uh, I can't do the Nashville thing anymore. I've got to start a new life. And so this song is really about her. She's being hard on herself. She's saying, look, you're in L.A. now. Uh, you're not with your family. You're not with your old bandmates. Um, You've got to get it together. And so she talks about, um, you know, what am I going to do now that the world doesn't orbit around me? She says it in second person. She's talking about herself. And uh, she's talking about, ain't it fun living in the real world? Ain't it fun being all alone? Um, so this song is really about growing up and, um, you know, becoming, becoming an adult, essentially. And the things I hear overturns in the song, you know, are things like this per- performance mentality, grow up, be something. And, um, you know, being all alone, being all in the world not knowing um, what, what is next, not having anybody to rely on. Um, and the gospel choir part is so key. You know, don't, don't cry to your mama. You're in the real world now. You can't, you can't turn back to that. And so I have to say, this was a bit of a foil, uh, a Jesus juke, you might say. I'm not going to focus too much more on Paramore. I, I kind of want to use this as an opportunity to talk about something bigger. Um, but for what, it, for what it's worth, um, as a way of theological exercise, you know, we can listen to the honest voice of culture, it's kind of unfair calling Paramore culture. I mean, she's a, she's a Christian. She's a Baptist, I think. Um, at least that's what she professes. So it's kind of not fair calling her culture and as if we're this holy huddle. But as, as a way of exercising, we can listen to the honest voice of an artist saying, look, life is hard. Life is difficult. And we've got to buck up. We've got to really try harder. And this is what we hear all, all over, right? I mean, at work, at school, you know, if you're not making good grades, study harder. If, if you're not producing the results you need at work, you know, work harder. Uh, grow up. You can't cry, your, cry out to your mom. I mean, you've got to pull it together. And so these are sort of things I'm, I think about. And I, I really think that um, this is the way we approach God, too. We, we approach God um, kind of on an experiential way, at least maybe naturally we, we feel prone to do that. And before we get too far along, I want to admit also, before being a, <laughs> called a plagiarist, um, this, this book is really foundational to both this talk and just kind of my view of what worship is, um, what it means to be in relationship with God. So, you know, I go to seminary at Beeson, um, and which is which is a lot of fun, ain't it fun? Um, but I have to say, I read this my I read this my first semester at Beeson, and by far, like pound for pound, this has been the best book I've read at Beeson, um, along with um, joining the Advent that same semester. I mean, God was really upon us. I mean, I can say that truly. Um, 
that time in our life, we were looking for a place to worship, and not just to worship, but to be a part of a community. And so upon reading this and upon meeting uh, all of you, uh, we joined the Advent and decided to, to be here, and it was, it was great. I'll talk more about that later. But just, just from the outset, um, James Torrance gets a lot of the credit for what we're going to talk about here. Um, James was a theologian in Scotland at Aberdeen. He had a brother named Tom. If you've heard of a Torrance, you've probably heard of Tom, T.F. Torrance. Um, he, he wrote a lot more than his brother, but James wrote this little, just this little punch of 100 and, what, 140 pages maybe, 120 pages. And the first chapter alone, I, I highly recommend it to you. I think we have it in our, in our bookstore. Mark Ginolette last summer had it on his reading list, so some of you may have, may have read it. Has anybody heard of it? I'm not asking if you read it, but at least heard of it. Yeah, so if you've, if you've heard of it or maybe been familiar with it, uh, a lot of this will be familiar. But, so going back to this idea with Paramore, you know, being one-on-one, not knowing what to do. Um, James Torrance, and kind of experientially, I've, I've seen, we kind of approach God in the same way. Uh, we kind of view it as, it's God up there and we're down here. We're kind of all alone. We've got to produce results. We've got to do, do what we have. So, uh, J.B. Torrance comes up with three models. He's, by the way, he's no longer living. He died, um, just, just so you know. But anyways, three different models for how Christians and, and the churches kind of view worship's kind of the main thing, but even just our life with God. The first one he calls the Harnack model, which is essentially Unitarian. So with this model, you see there's kind of three different individuals, uh, the third, third being us, any individual, any placeholder. Um, Harnack wrote a book in kind of the turn of the 20th century talking about what is the, the real essence of Christianity. And he says that um, Christianity really is boiled down to not this mythic you know, idea of God coming to us and being incarnate, but really Jesus taught the kingdom of God, which consists of God being our Father and everyone else being sort of our brothers and sisters. So the, father, the fatherhood of man, brother, or fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. And so there's no, there's no need for atonement. There's no need for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there's really no need for, for any of that stuff. We throw that out because we have a direct relationship, just like Jesus had a direct relationship with God by way of being a moral, up, upright person. So did Paul. So, so do we. And so I think a lot of Christians kind of view this. Uh, this is just kind of a natural religious tendency to think like, um, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Bingo, bango, we're done. Like, that's it. That's, that's Christianity. That's religion. Uh, and that's the Harnack model. And I think if you ask the average person, whether Christian or not, this is how religion is kind of viewed. Produce results. You're on your own. You, you can't depend on anybody. You've got to do right before God and before, before humanity. And so this is essentially Unitarian. We've wiped out any need for the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, okay, we'll go ahead and look at the next one, too. The second one's not that different, but there is a slight difference. The second one he calls the experience model. Uh, which has some Trinitarian overtones to it. There's, there's room for you know, the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but ultimately it's still functionally Unitarian. Do you know what I mean when I say Unitarian? So the, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, which we confess here at the Advent as, as Protestants, as Catholics in, in the world, as Christians, um, you know, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed, um, the Trinity is the idea that God, just like Deut- Deuteronomy 6 says, He's one. God is one. And yet, as we looked at the Bible in the New Testament, we see Jesus come before us, we realize that um, God is also has a threeness to him. He's not three different gods. He's one God with three identities, three persons, you might say. That's kind of the, the word that the early church used. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all one God. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity in a very truncated fashion. Uh, Unitarianism would, would be the idea that God is singular. So Maybe God the Father, you might, you might think of it that way. There's the Spirit and the Son, they're not, they're, not really, they're not really God. They may kind of fit into a, a God-like function. Anyway, so in this model, you have a legitimate work of Christ. So we talk a lot about the cross and a lot about the resurrection, about the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's in this model. And that, 
that justification, that, that work on the cross, is what the gospel message is. And so we hear the gospel message, uh, which we hear every week here, uh, both in our liturgy and our sermons and in the songs we sing and the conversations we have. Um, that gospel message comes to us. And then we, by faith, give a response uh, to that. You know, we hear the message and we appropriate it and say, okay, I accept that. I'm a Christian. And that, that's uh, what we might call personal salvation. But ultimately there, too, so God may be working along the way in these events, you know, in Jesus, maybe even in the Old Testament, uh, in the preaching of the Word, but ultimately it comes down to us whether we're going to accept this message and respond to God in faith. So you still got essentially a Unitarian relationship with God where God expects something from you, and, and really it's faith. And so these are the two models that, that Torrance uh, sees mostly in the churches. Again, this, this was you know 20-some-odd years ago when he wrote this, but I don't, I don't see a huge difference today. And I think about my life as a Christian uh, prior, prior to Beeson and Advent, um, I think about worship for me on a, on a weekly basis was going to church and kind of, you know, either listen to a 45-minute sermon like this, you know, or thinking like, I've got to really pray hard. I've got to really think hard about what I'm feeling right now, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, uh, what I do when I lead the service. And I think maybe functionally I had this model, and maybe some of us still do. And this is not such a bad model. I mean, there's, there's a lot of room for uh, talking about the atonement, talking about the, the necessary uh, function of preaching in the church, I mean, it, it kind of works, and maybe in an experiential way, like this is how we experience it, uh, but it, it doesn't leave enough room for union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so this is where the third model comes in, what, what Torrance calls the Trinitarian incarnational model. And so this is actually a very, a very simple version of what he has. I can show you, if you can see this at all, uh, he has a lot more going on here. So he's got Israel in the mix. He's got, um, you know, Jews, Gentiles, male, female. So, but I've, I've kind of boiled it down to what he says uh, and so you have the Father and the Son, Jesus, who have a two-way relationship. It's not a unitary relationship. It's the Father giving grace to the Son, the Son, you know, worshiping the Father and giving back, having perfect communion with the Father. You see that two-way relationship in the Holy Spirit. So we've got a doctrine of the Trinity um, there in our model. So Jesus, both as God and as man, has a relationship with the Father. And so in, in virtue of that, we also can share in that uh, in the Holy Spirit. So this model here, this, the one we talked about previously, this experientially makes sense. Um, you can maybe reflect on a time. I can think of a time, you know, when I wasn't a Christian. I can think, you know, 14-year-old Jay, not a Christian, not going to church. I hear the gospel message. I accept it in faith. And so, like, putting my experience to this, it, it looks right. But as I've learned and as I've seen and as I've read Scripture, I realize, you know, all along it's God was calling me with his Holy Spirit uh, to be united in Jesus' faith. Talk about the faith of Jesus. Not my faith, but Jesus' faith. Um, and there's a debate there in Scripture whether, you know, when it talks about having faith, is it Jesus' faith or our faith? And, and Torrance clearly comes out as it's Jesus' faith that we share in. And so the, the reason this, this model is so important is because we don't have to produce results anymore. It's Jesus who produces the results. Who, not only did he die on the cross uh, and resurrect and ascend, but he's still in heaven um, right with the Father advocating for us, like even now. And so we share in that. So it's not a past event that we kind of say, well, that was important, and, and now this event of my faith is more important. We're sharing in a relationship that continues into eternity, even now as we speak. Like if we have grace from the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, it's because it's happening now. It's not something that just happened in the past, although it did happen in the past. He's been working uh, since creation. But this, this assures us that it's not my faith that makes this solid. It's not an event when I was 14. It's not a mission trip I went on when I was 18. It's not the fact that I go to seminary. It's not the fact that we go to the... Ad it's the fact that Jesus still shares in this perfect relationship with the Father. 
And so we can be assured of that. We can be assured that that's not going anywhere. So unlike Paramore, and I don't want to pick on her because that's totally what the world is, right? We need to produce results. We need to be a certain way. Unlike that message, uh, which I don't think she would claim. I don't think she would say that's her faith. But um, for what it's worth, that's what the song says. Um, Unlike that, we can be rest assured that God's not looking at us to produce results. All right, so a little scripture, um, not so much as a proof text, but as... um, reading this Trinitarian logic and how Scripture presents itself. So if you have Bibles there, I know I've got it up. If you want, Feel free, you can grab. I know some people prefer a tangible text, um, and I'll give you a moment to, to get there. I, I kind of debated between this text. This text has been very important to me um, the last year, uh, and John in particular is just... Um, it's a gospel that really stresses that unique relationship between the Father and the Son. When you read it, you talk about, um, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life. He just says that to the disciples in John 14. And what do they respond? They say, Jesus, when are we going to see the Father? And Jesus says, I just told you. If you see me, you see the Father. Like, this is, this is your way in. There's no way of getting to the Father through the back door. John is all about this. And so this is um, Jesus praying for the disciples. And here in this passage, he's praying really for us. Um, so I'll read it out loud. And if you have it, you can read along. So John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have, you have for me may be in them and that I, my, I myself may be in them. Okay, so that's a rich passage. Um, so go back to the model for just a second. Um, so have this in your mind a little bit. Uh, this is kind of a kind of a, a cheat sheet, you might say, because John, this, this particular passage doesn't t- talk about the Holy Spirit, but if you look at the passage right before that, he's promising the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's there. It's not as if I, I'm reading something into text. It's not there. But so have this model in mind. So we go to this passage, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that's us. So we weren't there with Jesus at the Last Supper. We weren't there to see him die on the cross. Uh, we weren't there to see him resurrected. Um, we weren't there when Paul saw him ascended later, um, or resurrected rather. I mean, we, here we are in the 21st century. H- how do we come to this? And Jesus, even before we were even born, long before we were born, Jesus is already praying for us. He's praying that we would receive the message and that we would believe, um, even though we have not seen. And so he's praying for what? He's praying for unity, not just with each other, but with God. And that unity is only made possible through this, through this Trinitarian life of God being given to us uh, by the incarnated Christ, who is fully God and fully man, giving us his life. Um, And not just giving his life on the cross, but giving his life now uh, in the church and in the preaching of the the message. And so, looking here at verse um, verse 24, or 25 rather, um, it says, The world does not know you. So Harnack, that Harnack model, would say, wait a minute, the world does know God. We, we have a, a relationship with God. Just in virtue of being moral creatures, um, we can know God. 
Jesus says, no, we can't. The world does not know God. Uh, and we can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. And that revelation is not simply just through uh, our faith to a message. It's, it's this continual, continual participation in the life of God. Sorry for all the head spinning of the slides. And I know this will be a headache for anybody listening who's not here, but um, we can't know God. We can't know God outside of the way he's revealed himself. So we can try really hard. Uh, we, we can try not to cry out to our mama because we're alone. And we can try to be really moral creatures and to, to make really good grades and have a really good golf score, which I can't do. Um, we can get our raise. We can move uh, our kids to the best university. I mean, we can do anything we want, but that's not going to that's not going to bring us to life in God. And it may bring happiness in the short run, but not this participation in the joyful existence that, that God has given us. Um, and so that's, this is really where it's coming from. This, this passage, I think, John 17, 20 through 26, uh, nails it. And I think Torrance has, has picked it up pretty well. I don't know if he uses that passage. but uh, Another one I debated using was from Romans 6, where it talks about we've died in Christ, and when he's been raised, we've been raised a new life in him. And the life that he has, he has in God, and that same life is given to us. Um, I know that's kind of abstract. You think about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all this stuff, but um, think about the prayers we pray each week, uh, both in morning prayer and in Holy Communion. Think, think about it for a moment. When we read a psalm, what do we say immediately after reading a psalm? Does anybody know? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. It's, it's in our, our liturgy. It, we, can't, we can't move it. I mean, I guess we could move it. I guess if something happened, I, I probably wouldn't be a part of the church if we stopped believing in, in the Trinity. But it's, it's a part of, even after a psalm reading, so it's impossible, based on the Book of Common Prayer and based on the liturgy of the church and based on the Bible, um, to read a psalm or to read the Old Testament and not have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in mind. It's the same God. So Old Testament God and New Testament God, uh, they're the same God. And I, I love the Book of Common Prayer for, for bringing that out. Blessed be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament. Um, and so when you think about this, this has practical implications, not only for worship, which it clearly does, uh, but for our life too. The life that we live is in Christ, before the Father, in the Holy Spirit. Um, even when we go to work, even when we go to class, um, even when we're having a fight with uh, someone in our family, I mean, we're, we're right there with them, and, and God is praying for us, not only then, but, but even now. Has anybody seen this, this icon before? It's pretty famous. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of overdone, I have to admit. Uh, people, people use this a lot. Um, it's the Trinity by a guy named Andrei Rublev, um, Russian Orthodox, I believe. Um, and, and the picture is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's also kind of intended to be the three visitors that come to Abraham. Um, so, can anybody take a guess? I know it's not a very clear picture. Which one is the Father, which one is the Son, which one is the Holy Spirit? It's a good guess. Oh, oh, another good guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to tell unless you play it very... And this is, I think this is Rublev's intention. Uh, we can't distinguish the Father from the Son and from the Holy Spirit so easily. I mean, we can, but... Uh, only, only by paying close attention. Um, he, he's also done something very, very unique in the sense that um, there's not a strong uh, sense of hierarchy. There's not a strong sense of, of gender. And I, I don't want to go on that, on that, um, that rabbit trail. Um, a, a lot of people are kind of upset about praying father and son because that's male, um, which that's, that's the language the Bible has given to us. But I think the beauty of this icon is that's, we're not obsessed with that right now. We're obsessed with this participation, this communion, Amongst the three, the Father is the one on the left, and the reason uh, the reason we think this is because the Son and the Spirit are both looking at the Father. 
So in the creeds, it talks about the Father being the source. You know, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is begotten of the Father, or the Son, rather. So those two are kind of looking at the Father as their source. Um, the Son, you can't really tell here, but he's got kind of two fingers out at the table. Uh, and that's supposed to represent his divine, his divine nature and his human nature on, on each finger. Um, and also, he's kind of pointing towards the dish in the middle. What do you think the dish is? Yeah, it's the Lord's Supper. It's the, it's the Holy Meal. It's the Eucharist, uh, the, the bread and the cup. And so in this picture, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion with one another, eating together, essentially. And I don't know if your eyes are drawn, but I'm drawn to this empty seat right before us. Do you see that? You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then this empty seat on the table. That's for us. We're being invited in. God has invited us to, to, to commune with him. And so, I know at first you can't really tell that, but that's, that's kind of what this is supposed to do. So this is kind of an early example, uh, kind of an early mockingbird attempt, I guess, in the 15th century uh, to, to use art and media and culture to, to bring out the gospel. And so I wanted to use this icon um, for this model and this, this passage from John because I think this is exactly what God is doing with us. He's inviting us to his table, um, not just at church, Although that's certainly the case, and I think that our liturgy does a beautiful job there too. Think about think about our liturgy for a moment. Think about maybe Holy Communion. What's the very first thing we do at Holy Communion? The, the law is recited, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Harnack would be with that. Harnack would be like, yes, do that. And then what do we immediately respond by saying? Say again. Yeah, that. After that, though, after after the law has been given, what is the yeah, all that. And we respond by saying, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. So every time you hear this, you think, okay, the law has been given. And the, the fir- our first response is, God, we can't do that. We can't do that. So Harnack, Harnack has it wrong from the start. And I don't want to pick on him. That's, that was German uh, Protestant liberalism in the, in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century. I mean, that was the camp he was in. And um, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but that's, that's just what, it's, what it is. Um, Lord, have mercy. Christ have mercy. The law is given. So the liturgy has already started out as we can't do it on our own. We need God's holy communion. So that we hear his word, we hear it preached, we sing, and then we come to the table where God is giving his life to us. And immediately after, upon receiving um, God's communion at the table, um, we pray that he may be in us and we may be in him. It's this participation in, in Christ. Um, so all this has been unfairly to Paramore, been, been coupled with worship and how we have union with Christ. Um, but I, I want to say we have a real gift, not only here at the Advent, but uh, those who, who worship this way. The narrative of our worship service is not, it's not centered on if we have electric guitars, that's fine for what it's worth. It's not centered on um, how long we... Paige was telling me last week about going to New York a few years ago, and they had a 45-minute prayer, which was not as even as long as the sermon. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine sitting and listening to one person pray for 45 minutes. But culture and, and the way our churches are outside of um, what, what we have here, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but I'm saying we have a real, a real gift. Um, it's all about pulling our bootstraps up, and so praying for 45 minutes is a way to prove to God that we've got it figured out. Or having the best worship service and sense of music and production, and that's a way of proving to God that we, we're worthy. Um, our, our liturgy and, and the way Scripture is revealed is Worship's not about that. It's about participating in the worship that Christ has already done on the cross and resurrected and ascended. We're participating in that worship. So anything that we bring 
it's, it's only has value in him. It doesn't have value in what we've brought. So Harnack and the experience model, sorry, you're not going to work. We need the Trinity. We need the life of God given to us. And so that's one of the main reasons I have to say, like in my life and in our life, like Advent's been a real gift. Um, worship in this way has been a real gift. And I know youth, that's super hard. I know it's hard to pray out of a book and you do it the same thing every week. And, and I'm not saying you go off to college and you, you better go to this type of church. I, I think that between your family and, uh, and God, for heaven's sake, um, you'll, you'll find a church. And it doesn't have to look this way, but I, I think it's a real gift. And, and maybe over time you'll realize that too if you haven't already. And maybe not. Maybe you'll say, you know what, there's, there's better ways to worship. There's better ways. And that's okay too. I, I think that there's, um, there's value across the denominational divides. Uh, but I, I think we've, we've got a real gift. Okay, last thing after this icon, some, some points to bullet down to. So our lives are not lived as autonomous individuals, but as participants in God's life and communion. So unlike moving to L.A. and trying to pull it together, unlike studying so hard for our tests and having all our value put in that, unlike um, having the prestige and awards of life, God does not look at us based on that. He looks at us through his son, through the merits of his son. So we're, we're live, living in God's life not as individuals of free will and, and good decision-making. We're living a gift from God. We don't produce or perform in order to have life in God. We simply receive and participate at the table, partaking of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascended glory in that perfect communion with God. So I hope that that means something to you. It means everything to me. Uh, and I have to say, even though the experience model may say differently, it may feel right, Everything we have is backed by what God has done in his triune life. And that has meaning not only at church, but on the basketball court and at the office and wherever you may be. So I'll open up this time for questions. Cameron. Could you make a distinction between performance and participation? Yeah, that's good. So we'll go back to this slide. Um, performance. You, we, we hear this language a lot of law and gospel. Maybe that's something more familiar. Performance is this idea... Um, that I've got to um, win someone's favor. So performance, you can think of as a play or at, at the ballpark performing a certain way. But in our life, like we have the sense that our value is found in what we produce, whether it be money or grades or friends that we have, you know, having so many friends on Facebook or being followed on Twitter. Performing is all about recognition in what we, what we do. Whereas participation is resigning that, we may still do, I mean, we still live our lives, but we're participating in the merit that God has given us. So that classic doctrine of justification uh, by faith, uh, by, by grace, through faith, that, that's what it means to participate as opposed to produce. So it's not what we, we do or what we're doing, it's what Jesus has done. So our youth t-shirts, if you've ever seen them, they're really great. WWHD, what, or W, w yeah, WWHD, what, what, help me out here. There you go. What has Jesus done? Not what would had Jesus. Uh, what has Jesus done? And I also like to think, and I think that's, that's the gospel, what has Jesus done? And our continued life is what is Jesus doing? W-I-J-D. What is Jesus doing? And he's, he's allowing us to participate through his Holy Spirit. Good. Any more thoughts? You go. a, a second model where you said that it, it uh, kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, if it includes the atonement somehow, it only makes sense if you don't think about it too hard. Because, it, you know, for, for, for Jesus not to have been God, 
there's no way you can derive atonement from that. Sure. Sins of the whole world. And, and, and you don't even have to be a Christian for that to, to, to make, make sense in that sense. You, you, could, you could get a philosophy or logic class and try to break that down, and it wouldn't take three minutes before you arrive at the conclusion <laughs> that it just that dog won't hunt. You know? Because if, if he's not alive, then. So, yeah, Jesus being. Jesus being fully God and fully man. And I think this model could have that. Maybe someone like, I don't know, Bultmann may not have that kind of presupposition. But the early Karl Barth probably had that sort of thing in mind. But the, the distinction is, and I think you're right, if, if, if he's not God, we're, we need to go home. We just, we're, we're done. Okay, let's assume for a moment he is, though. This model is saying that that's in the past, and that's a good thing. And yeah, we get, we justif- we're justified by that. He was God. He was man. But now it's up to us in faith not only to receive it, but to, to continue with it. So, so he can be God, but that's a, that's a past event. Now it's up to me to continue to produce and continue to perform. It's not participation. It's uh, I've got to respond properly. And so, I mean, this is kind of the church I came out of uh, in high school and, and kind of in college too. I mean, we would affirm things like God being, Jesus being fully God and fully man. We would affirm, uh, yes, it's justification only by grace. But we would, only, we would not prefer, you know, affirm that it's his continual life and participation that allows us to, to continue in that. It would have been more like, I've got to work hard. I've got to produce results. I've got to follow the law. So, but you're absolutely right. If he's not God, models is done. Right. Any other thoughts? Charlie? When we say grace through faith, is there a component of our will and faith? Yeah, so I, I brought up the distinction earlier between Christ, faith of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean Christ has faith, or is it faith in Christ? And I think this is at least Torrance, and maybe we can we can bat this around a little. Um, it's it's Christ's faith going through with the incarnation, being born of a Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. It's His faith through that that perfect communion with God. Our faith comes in as we hear that, which this makes sense with that. I think that we do participate in faith, but it's only because Christ had faith first. So we've been baptized into that, but it's because he's been baptized into it. We're, we're un, unified with him. And so our faith uh, is an appropriate response, but it's not what guarantees whether we're in or out. Uh, God has already made it clear that in Christ, he's made his yes to us. Uh, and that, that, of course, brings up a huge debate on who's elect and who's not, and we don't want to go there right now. I would actually love to go there, but we don't have time. So I'm, I'm off the hook. Uh, no, but, but our faith is the way that uh, maybe we come to realize it. But, but it's Christ's faith that ensures it, if that makes sense. It's unshakable, unlike this model. This, this model, it's, it's shakable. If I don't have faith, if I lose faith even for a moment and say I die, that's it. I mean, I, I'm, I don't have union with, with Christ. Good question. One, one last question. All right, well, let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Gracious God, we are so thankful um, that we don't have to produce results, we don't have to perform, we don't have to be a certain way to have your love. In virtue of your incarnated life in Christ, you've, you've invited us in to live and have communion with you. And God, we give you thanks that it's not up to us to continue to have faith and continue to try harder, Lord, but you give it as a gift in Christ. So God, may we leave now in celebration uh, that you love us and that we can love one another because of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.